There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL Draft this year. My name is Ben Solak, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and Greg Horbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, which is, yeah, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, which includes which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are bad, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. That is the Ringer NFL Draft Show. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Wednesday, February 28th. Are you familiar with Sora? A lot of people in Hollywood are having meltdowns about this very new technology. It's from OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT. And it's a tool that takes text prompts and uses them to generate video. And at least from the demonstrations, it's not available publicly yet, it's pretty great video. Realistic, even cinematic video. They're only like a minute long, and they don't yet come close to what humans create, especially creative professionals. But like with all this stuff, the tech is moving pretty fast. I am very, very concerned that in the near future, a lot of jobs are going to be lost. That's Tyler Perry. He said that after he first saw Sora. Last weekend at the SAG Awards, Fran Drescher, the president, said, AI will entrap us in a matrix where none of us know what's real. Remember, AI was a big negotiation point in the labor standoffs last summer and fall. And at least according to one recent report, about 62,000 entertainment jobs in California alone will be disrupted by the rise of AI just within the next three years. Other more long-term predictions say the entire entertainment industry is at risk here. It could be upended by these AI-generated videos. I've been a little skeptical when I see that stuff. I don't think these tools are nearly where they would need to be to upend an industry. But what do I know? I'm not an expert on AI or tech. So today I brought in a guy who definitely is. Ben Thompson is a well-known tech analyst and thinker. He runs the digital media company called Stratechery, where he writes and podcasts. He and I are going to break down the new Sora tool, what it does and doesn't do, how companies like Disney should be reacting to all this and planning for the future. And he'll answer the very real question, will AI video programs replace Hollywood? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Ben Thompson, founder of Stratechery and generally very smart guy. We've got a real smart guy on the show today. None of these Hollywood people, a real smart person. Welcome, Ben. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, <laughs> my preemptive apologies to our Hollywood friends. <laughs> uh, all right. So this new Sora program has caused everybody in town to freak the F out. I mean, the Tyler Perry quote of him saying he's scrapping his $800,000 studio expansion. Uh, $800,000 you could manage. I think it's $800 million. No, $800 million. Yes, $800 million. Yes, you're right. There are, you know, I'm getting DMs and 
texts all the time, like, holy shit, man, is it over? Is it over? Is it really over now? First, a little bit of explanation. Explain what the advance is here with Sora. Sora will generate about a, I think it's up to a minute long clip of a video based on a prompt. So you had, you know, some of the initial examples is like two ships in a battle in a cup of coffee. And that was actually one of my favorite clips for a few reasons. Number one, it sort of speaks to the sort of silly spectacle that you're not going to get anywhere else, right? But it's a great example of what AI can do. It can do silly things, right? Because, you know, the, the sort of core concept of AI and the reason why it is considered frightening to lots of different industries is despite the fact that from a energy perspective and, and, and capital invested perspective, it costs a lot to do something like that on sort of a marginal basis. It doesn't cost anything, particularly relative to paying a human to go and illustrate something like that and render yeah. it and all those sorts of things. A unionized human can cost a lot to draw something that can, at least in the short version, look pretty damn good. Well, that's the thing. I think there's a lot of it that is very impressive. I would say the reason I like that one in particular, it gets a lot of the sort of lighting correct and, and mm -hmm. water and sort of fluid effects. And there's been a big debate on Twitter. Like, is there some sort of like emergent physics model embedded in this sort of thing? I think that's the answer to that is complicated. Uh, you know, I think, is it an actual physics model? The answer is no. It, you know, the way it works is we have these image generation models. They've, you know, we've seen them for the last few years. And they're basically, they start out with, with noise and sort of pull an image out of that. And they do that based on the extensive training of what an image associated with different words would sort of mean. And it sort of like discovers this image in sort of latent space. And then that is combined with the same sort of technology that's used for things like ChatGPT, where it's sort of predicting what the next word would be or the next token. In this case, the token is sort of the next pixel. Like, like right. well, how would it actually move? And in that context, you can actually understand how it can do something like light or water very well. Because if you're ingesting a gazillion images or videos or things along those lines, you're picking up on that sort of information. And so you are getting this sort of knowledge of the world. But it's also, at the end of the day, you are sort of predicting what the next pixel is. You're not going to be using this to model air over an aircraft wing or something like that. That's still going to be the domain of traditional sort of right. what's called deterministic computing. You use the example of like, if you take a bite out of something, you might not see the bite marks. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think they're, 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 that was an example. They showed some other ones that didn't work, like a glass shattering and like kind of shattered in the wrong order. <laughs> and the important thing about that stuff is that stuff will get better, right? Like, and I think this is maybe one of the reasons why Sora, you know, I, I'm actually curious from your perspective, you have probably have more visibility into the freakout sort of as it were, but people have seen the progress of sort right. of text-based ones. They've seen the progress of, of image generation. Image generation has actually probably been even starker, the, the extent to which it has, has accelerated. And so you take that knowledge of improvement that's happened in adjacent spaces, apply it to video, and you realize that this stuff is going is going to get a lot better. Right. And I think that people around town, around Hollywood, they don't know anything. They just they hear these scary terms. They hear that AI is coming for them. Chat GPT. We didn't even know what this was 18 months ago. And then it all of a sudden became the last sticking point in union negotiations that shut the entire industry down. And I think people look at this and say, OK, this is what it is today. 
But if the trajectory of this stuff is going a mile a minute and in you know 18 months, we go from nothing to shutting the industry down, then where is this going to be in three, five years? And you have leaders in the industry saying this. I mean, Jeffrey Katzenberg got up at a conference and said that he believes in three years, 90% of animation jobs will be obsolete because of AI. I'm skeptical of that number. My suspicion, and we're certainly sort of shooting in the dark here to a certain extent. I mean, it, you know, just to sort of put my cards on the table, you know, I was aware of sort of text generation. I think the image generation was, was sort of a not surprise, but it was so impressive when it really started to emerge. At the time that happened, and I, you know, I wrote about where I think this will be useful, which we can talk to a bit. I think this is really compelling for sort of VR. I think there's a real intersection here between image generation and, and, and VR. I wrote at the time, and this was, you know, a couple years ago, look, this is obviously going to be video soon, but it's going to take a few years. Well, to your point, it took like 18 months to sort of get to, to the point of Sora. But at the same time, my suspicion is this is going to be more of a bottoms-up phenomena. And if anything, Hollywood in particular will hold off longer than others. Why so? The reason is that just sort of to, to step back and think about sort of text versus image versus video. I think one of the reasons why images have accelerated so quickly, particularly relative to text. I mean, what you can get out of like mid-journey or something like that is really truly remarkable. And, and, and the speed relative to getting sort of a human to do it is amazing. And on one hand, it feels so amazing because images tell a thousand words, right? There's so much detail and so much in there. And it's like, wow, how long would it take me to sort of produce all that? But that aspect, that a thousand words aspect, means there's a lot of latent space for sort of interpretation and choices that I'm not making. When I say generate a picture of two guys on a podcast, I don't have a particularly strong point of view on what those people look like, what the backgrounds are. Mine's kind well, of a Gemini mess right might. now. Well, Gemini might. Gemini definitely would have a point of view on that. <laughs> good point. Good point. Um, we would be we would be African-American women, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, I, think, I mean, it, it would definitely not be two white men because that's like explicitly banned. <laughs> um, but but the, the part of that is because there's that latent space between a few words that I put into a prompt and what's actually generated, that gives a tremendous amount of latitude for the AI to sort of figure it out and put it in there. And so in areas where I think this is particularly compelling, I have a, I have a designer friend that has heavily adopted AI into his workflow, not at all to generate final images, but just to sort of iterate and sort of get inspiration right. and figure out a particular direction he wants to go. It's like a, it's like an inspiration engine. It's a productivity tool, right? essentially, for a creative person. So you, you go to the opposite direction and, and um, you know, uh, Dennis, um, I, I can't pronounce his last name. Who's the Dune 2 director? Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I knew it was a good choice to not even go there. <laughs> uh, he had a really interesting, you know, he's been on sort of the press tour this week and he's really yeah. been cooking. Uh, but he had some points of view about like, I think one of my favorites was he wants to make movies with zero dialogue, right? Right, And I saw just that. the idea that you're in a theater with this big screen and you have this experience of this, image th th these views that are only really possible with movies and you know he was like kind of oh they, all that dialogue that's for tv right? right but i think there was something very powerful about that i mean i like it number one i love his movies and i completely agree that's what i want out of a movie viewing experience personally 
But that is part and parcel of him having a very distinct vision of what he wants to present. And I would expect that even if Sora becomes phenomenally capable, the ability to go from a vision in a director's head to a manifestation on the screen that is even remotely close to that vision, we're a very far away from that, in part because of what makes it possible is this huge amount of latent space in a few words describing it and an actual manifestation of that. Now, here's a use case for generative AI. Meta and Google are both building it into their ad automation tools. So you can go in and say, here's my core brand image. Here's my general message. What they are going to do is they are going to generate images for your advertisement. They are going to instantly test them, put them out there, see how people respond. And they will cycle through this very quickly and figure out what's the best image that works, what's the best text that works. And that will make your advertising sort of more effective. Or like, what if the Limu Emu did this? Right. What if, you know, what if, what if our mascot all of a sudden was this? Something like that. Right. But it's going to be even more open than I expect, right? Like our mascot is an Emu and, and uh, make some advertisements. Right. And, and in that case, number one, there's a very discrete measurement function, which is did the ad convert or not? Right. You know, if it's successful or not. Number two, your goal is not to make an artistic statement. Your goal is to sell Liberty Life Insurance or whatever, right. whatever whatever it is. Or another example is you want to generate engagement on a social media account. Well, guess what? You know, social media account that's doing very well is OpenAI's Sora, like TikTok account, right? right? You just putting stuff interesting up there and seeing what resonates and what doesn't, that is well suited to this sort of iterative, you know, instead of having a, a, an artist generate ads or generate social media sort of engagement posts, you have this format that is, zero marginalized content. There's infinite amount of content. AI is well suited to that. I think there's actually a pretty significant gap to, I have a vision in my head that I want to communicate to an audience and AI is going to help me accomplish that or is going to generate that. Now, AI can do stuff like, if they show this with Sora, you could give it an image and say, animate this image or fill in these parts. But that's a story that's happened in animation for years and years. Like they used to hand draw every single frame of a movie. Now they do certain parts and that's already filled in sort of by computers. We're, we're already sort of there. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is already happening. I mean, you look at what Jon Favreau is doing with the Star Wars shows. I mean, a lot of that is generated by the rendering engine. It was also, it was this funny thing where everyone was going nuts over the new Star Wars movie being shot in California. They got a tax credit to shoot the Mandalorian movie in in California. And everyone's going, oh, it's going to be great. Favreau's going to be in the Redwood Forest and going to be at Lake Tahoe. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) He's going to be in Playa Vista doing his thing with the big screen. It's just they just decided they don't need to go to Morocco anymore or go to these giant London sound stages anymore. If they can, you know, Favreau likes his restaurants. He likes being in L.A. And he's going to be able to shoot that in Playa Vista. So they'll do some outdoor stuff as well. But that is the value add. And these studios are under such pressure right now to reduce the costs of these movies, which have just ballooned over the past decade. And that's why they want the freedom to experiment with AI. And I agree with you that I don't think it's going to replace certain effects or certain things in these big budget movies. But I think at the lower end of the content 
trough at the, you know, YouTube videos and my colleague, Julie Alexander at Puck has written about this YouTube videos and, you know, lower end content and things that are maybe not, not the DreamWorks movies, but the cheapo animation movies that just kind of, you know, are flooding the streaming services, those kinds of things, they will be able to leverage AI in a way that makes them cheaper. Right. But that speaks to the long-term sort of risk. So basically long and short, Short term, I think there's going to not just retain value at sort of the high end and not only just make it more efficient, but actually in many respects, make it more valuable precisely because it's distinct and it's handmade and it's artisanal and all those sorts of things that go into the high end. But what we're describing here, this is a sort of disruption sort of story which is, you know, what disruption is, it's not just a new technology. A, a, a disruption is you're able to do something that exists with a meaningfully different cost structure because of a technological advancement, right? So what is not disruption is having like a Best Western next to a Ritz-Carlton. It's just <laughs> inferior. If you want to deliver the same experience, you're going to be paying the same price, right? Mm -hmm. But if you can actually generate new scenes at basically, you know, not zero marginal cost, but compared to a human, effectively zero marginal cost, you can suddenly open up new markets that are not possible. And what will happen to the traditional formats is they will actually become more highly differentiated and they will go further up market to sort of escape from that and say, look, if you want the real thing, this is where you go. The problem in the long run is that if that cost advantage is based on technology, technology gets better. And so it sort of moves sort of up market. And so to this point, yeah, who's going to get in first? Ads on the internet, right? Like that's yeah. going to be something that's going to happen. If you are a graphical artist building ads on the internet, I'd be very nervous. Then it's going to go up to social media. Then it's going to go up to things like YouTube, to your point. And it's going to get better and better. And at some point in the future, I'm sure someone will make a, a fully sort of AI video and everyone's going to lose their minds over it. And it's right. probably going to be garbage. But it won't come from Hollywood, probably. It will come from outside the system. That's right. It's going to come up from, from sort of a, a, a different direction. Mm -hmm. And what is going to remain is sort of very high-end content. It's going to start lowbrow and then middlebrow, and that's going to be sort of the procession. But I think that's going to be a pretty, you know, again, with the caveat that I'm not always right on my timeline here, but that's going to be what's going to happen over the very long run, I would suspect. Do you think that the traditional entertainment companies are capable of that transition? We have this activist investor, Blackwell's Capital. They put out a presentation today that called on Disney to fully embrace AI in its studio and theme park business. And they had the quote that said, Disney will never be valued as a technology company so long as it does not think like a technology company. And I saw that and I was like, Disney does not think like a technology company. It thinks like an entertainment company, which is what it is. Do these traditional Hollywood studios need to think like technology companies to succeed in the future? So this is almost like a philosophical debate about <laughs> like businesses and companies. My view, broadly speaking, is I have no desire for Disney to think like a technology company. What I want from them is to do what makes Dis only Disney can do. And I say that as someone on the outside who is like, look, you've been built to do one thing, do that until you can do it anymore, and then return the money to investors and they can put it in new companies that sort of like do, do different things. And I think we have this, this sort of bias towards companies living forever when 
we're better off if companies focus on doing one thing and the money's fungible and can then can go somewhere else. Now, that's not any help to Disney itself because they are very invested in sort of Disney living forever, to, sure. you know, to be clear. My suspicion is that Disney is probably going to be better served being Disney and not cheapening sort of what they have and their IP and seeing how they can leverage AI to certainly be more efficient. Like, how can it be a part of their workflow? But are you going to, in the long run, be competitive with, you know, the the proverbial kid in his garage creating a completely new animated movie where with very little directorial control, it's maybe a story and he has a storyboard and things on those lines, but the look and feel ends up being, you know, determined by these things. I mean, the core thing about AI is this idea that it's probabilistic. It's giving you what is probably the, the next right answer. And that differs from deterministic, which is it does exactly what you tell it to. And all of our media today, by and large, and certainly something like Disney, it's deterministic. The director has a vision and that's what it sort of delivers. And I, I mean, I can make an analogy here to what you and I do, like we're writers, like we we put down and the words that that we reported or, or, or analyze are our thoughts. And it's sort of exactly what we want to do. And I'm very careful. Every single word that I publish is one that I've thought about and considered and it's going on there. I'm not going to have AI writing for me and sort of uh, you haven't a, a put your years. you haven't asked ChatGPT to do a Ben Thompson column. Well, number one, I've not for 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 obvious reasons. <laughs> but number two, someone sent me one and it wasn't bad. So wasn't bad in that, like, what's your standard, right? Your standard is that's plausible. Yeah, it sounded like me is right. what I'm saying and and was sort of topical. Was it actually insightful? Was there was there actually, you know, something that that was that was original in here? No. And I think and I'm biased in this perspective because I have self-interest in continuing to do what I do. I don't feel threatened by ChatGPT at all because what matters is not my tone and style of voice. It's the actual sort of core insights that's in there. That said, just because it's fine for me doesn't mean it's fine for all the gazillions of jobs that are just doing copywriting, right? That are just doing SEO posts that are doing, you know, basic right. sort of stories about, you know, the score of a game or something along those lines. And so I think that same analogy applies to movies, but that implication is those at the top of the food chain are in some respects the least threatened and do have, at least in the medium term, large market opportunities. Like, Taylor Swift, big deal last year, right? One of the things I think has been very striking that I've thought a lot about is why has this been so big? Why was it such a big deal? And certainly there's a function of, you know, her having a huge fan base and first tour after COVID and sort of all these sorts of things going on. But there's also an aspect of it's just really hard to be a star these days. Like the internet gives you so much content. There's lots of micro stars like you're the star of like entertainment writing. I'm the star of tech writing. In the broader populace, no one knows who the heck we are, right? Like we're just two white guys on a podcast. So, you know, that, that, that is not How generated by Gemini. How dare you? And so, <laughs> but, but the implication of there being fewer stars is that the ones that break through break through to an astronomical amount because I think there's such a society-wide hunger for a unifying experience. Everyone can agree, yeah, Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, that's great. And, and then you have social media that is just accentuating this and people sharing clips and all those well, sorts of things. Well, that's the explanation people have told me for why the NFL is going up. It's because there are so few of those things now that when we see it, 
we want that communal experience and more of us gravitate towards it. That's exactly right. I, I think that's the exact same sort of dynamic. And so my perspective, if I were advising Disney, would be like, what is more plausible for you as an outcome? Is it that you're going to suddenly compete with the entire internet in generating random AI videos or that you're going to be the one entity that can actually consistently break through and generate cultural moments that then not only resonate back onto your product, but resonate onto your streaming service and your theme parks and all these sorts of things. And I think that for a large entertainment company, that one is much more plausible. You can see a future where Disney still means something, even as a lot of the other sort of studios start to fade and become are, are, are sort of much more challenged. So this is one of those things where if I were giving advice, it would differ based on the studio. It would differ based on your capability of sort of breaking through. And so we always anchor on Disney, right? This is yep. a problem. I've written a ton about newspapers over the years just because newspapers were on the, the, the weeding edge of this, like of disruption by the internet. And the problem is when we write about newspapers, we always talk about the New York Times. The New York Times is not representative of the right. of newspapers, right? And I think I think there's an aspect of Disney. I mean, honestly, as long as I'm getting in my opinions on a Hollywood podcast, Disney needs to make good movies. That's their right. problem. And you're not going to make good movies by getting cheaper. What could happen is essentially what happened with digital animation, where Disney was floundering. There was this company in the Bay Area that was doing great work. They did a distribution deal with Disney to put the Toy Story movies in theaters via Disney. And all of a sudden, Disney looks at it and says, you know what? They do this better than us. Let's buy them. Let's bring them into the company. And they can teach us all how to make better animated movies using digital technology. There will be a AI version of Pixar somewhere out there that emerges and says, okay, we have determined how to do this better than you. So you better buy us and bring us into the fold or we are potentially going to grow and grow and eat you. Well, that's the other sort of broad thing that applies, you know, to the extent Disney is a thing like a tech company. This is a big one. You know, the the everyone thought with the Internet that, oh, anyone can sort of be online. We're going to have, you know, widely distributed. Everyone can publish X, Y, Z. That's the case. The issue is in a world of sort of zero marginal cost content, you have an infinite amount of content. The, the abundance is overwhelming. People focus on distribution. It's more about discovery. It's having customers know what's available. Everyone has distribution. People can go to their website and see it. What the, when they talk about Google controlling distribution, what they actually mean is Google controlling discovery. It's actually people becoming aware of sort of a product that exists. And that is the route to power sort of in tech generally. I call them aggregators, Google or Facebook, whatever it might be, where people go, that's where they start their sort of entertainment journey. And then they're served up things or discovered things. And by the way, if you're serving up stuff based on a, a, a person's interest, suddenly ads make perfect sense. It's, it's a perfect yeah. slot in for a Well, it becomes model. the most powerful position in the content ecosystem, the platform. That's right. And so the, when, when you talk about this idea of there being an infinite number of generators of movies in the long run because of AI, the, the entity that will solve that is the entity that actually picks out the movie or show you're interested in and puts it in front of you and helps you figure out what you want to watch. Now, this is the broader challenge for, and this applies to Netflix just as much as Disney, 
the issue there is less about, you know, Disney has that. People will go to the Disney Plus app or a, a movie is in theaters from Disney, and that is a reason to actually give it credence. But the challenge is YouTube coming along, right, where they're doing that distribution on a personalized level and, you know, doing the sort of recommendation algorithm. And in a world of you don't know who's making the next cool thing, a platform like YouTube is actually open to everyone. And, and YouTube is like the, the broader threat because at the end of the day, in this world of infinite content, we've been in a world of infinite text. Now we're, we're, we're moving or already in a world of infinite music. We're moving to a world of infinite video, the sort of only scarce resource. All money-making, all business models are predicated on controlling a scarce resource. And that scarce resource is time. It is the attention sort of of the user. And so the, the companies that will succeed are the ones that start with an advantage as far as monopolizing a user's time. And so this is why in the long run, Disney, whether, you know, because they have no choice because they bought, you know, 20th Century Fox or 21st Century or whatever century it is, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and they had to buy Hulu and all these sorts of things, they're sort of having to go on the all-in basis of we're going to be an entry point for consumers to content. And so when it ties to, yeah, they find someone that makes the cool movie, maybe they do a deal because what they bring to the table is the ability to show that content to 100 million people in a way that someone can't. Does that mean they themselves should be making that content with that method? Again, maybe in the long run, I like your Pixar analogy. If, if some sort of studio or group of folks figures it out well, maybe that makes sense for them. But I think in the long run, they're going to maximize shareholder value by doing what they do best, which is making stuff that can't be done with AI, whether that because for IP restrictions or because it's just better. Or the more talented people, yeah. And in the long run, does that mean in 50 years or in 10 years, they're going to be disrupted by AI? It might be the case, but then you get to the question of why would Disney be better at that than anybody else? The cost entry is so low, their entire cost structure is predicated around a different sort of model. This is like saying newspapers should win on the internet just because they used to print. Actually, the fact they used to print made them far less suited for the internet. They didn't have the right cost structure. Who succeeds on the internet is people like you and I, who don't have huge teams, who are small, have cost structures yeah. in control. Take We're not paying out pensions from 30 years ago. Right. We have, Social media to us is not a threat. It's a free distribution channel. It's a free marketing channel. Our users can sort of talk about us in those lines. The shift is just so fundamental from this bottoms up, zero marginal cost of content, that the companies that succeed will be new companies with completely new assumptions. It's not just about your decision to use AI. It's about what's the cost structure of your company, things like that. And Disney's not that. Disney, for whatever you want to say about it, is a very large company that is predicated on making tentpole movies, making IP experiences, monetizing people coming to their parks. I've been a fan of, I actually wrote an article, I wrote an article actually speaking of Taylor Swift called Disney's Taylor Swift Era. And my point there, and I, I can't remember this before after they announced of like the $60 billion in sort of CapEx expansion for their parks, is that the reality of Disney today is media companies were like tech companies for a long time, and they're analogous because of this idea that you invest a lot of money up front, and then you monetize it as, in as many ways you can on the back end. You've already made the movie, the whole windowing concept, first-run theaters, second-run theaters, HBO, airplanes, pay-per-view, XYZ, that 
is a tech concept. That's the idea of you make something once and you monetize it as many ways as possible because you've already spent the money to make it. And one of the massive errors of the last 10 years was forgetting that, <laughs> was saying like, we're going to collapse the number of areas we can, sort of, we can sort of make money when the whole idea is you have something unique so you have the luxury of sort of monetizing in as many ways as sort of possible. The opposite direction is sort of leaning into that, is saying, only we can build a theme park experience. Only we can do these sorts of things. And it's highly differentiated. It has a moat. It's also a less valuable business because you have to spend a lot of money. To right. your, your return <laughs> on invested capital is, is not nearly as good as making a film and monetizing a million ways. But to my mind, that's not a failure of Disney. That's a reality. That's an acceptance of reality. Like to be a physical experience to build cruise ships to build theme parks is something only disney can do and that that entails a lower long-run return than just being a studio of putting out a movie and monetizing in the window over you know the, the following year that's just not that's not the world we live in and so i like disney's move to focus on theme parks to focus on those sort of experiences to generate ip that pays off in that way because it's highly differentiated. It's a big moat. And honestly, my takeaway from Disney's stock slide, particularly last year, is, look, you got it priced in. Stop pursuing tech multiples. I would say you're not a tech company. What you are, though, highly differentiated. And that in a world of fundamental change driven by technology, by the internet and going forward by AI is going to be more valuable the multiples might not be as good as the 1990s or the 2000s, but it's actually a viable business and a viable business in the internet era is nothing to sneeze at. Fascinating stuff. All right, Ben Thompson, Stratechery is the website. Google it, read your stuff, listen to your pods. You were great. We'll have you back. Sounds good. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, it's here. You excited? Dune part two. It's impossible to ignore, at least for me on social media. The, the grassroots social media campaign to crown Dune 2 the greatest movie since Star Wars is really setting the bar quite high for this It film. is amazing. The nerds are going nuts for this. And uh, yeah, and I think Warner Brothers is being very conservative. They, they're telling people this movie is going to open to 65 million. The tracking is at about 70, 73, I think. I'm going to take the over. I talked to someone internally at Warner Brothers I wasn't supposed to talk to. And they're like, whatever the number they're giving you, take the over. <laughs> I'm like, okay. The PLFs, the premium screens, IMAX, the nerds are going to go to all those. It's going to push up the revenue. And I think we could see 80, 85, even 90. So I'm definitely taking the over on low 70s here. I will take the over as well. Denis Villeneuve has been on quite the press tour for a director who I don't think people really knew had a personality. They're really Oh, he's fun. Know. I've talked yeah. to him before. He's definitely fun. He's like Nolan. Nolan has the same, you know, public persona. And then this Oscar season, he's like kind of funny and likes to, you know, play around with people. The original Dune in 2021 opened to 41 million. It was also available day and date on HBO right, Max right, at right. the time. And COVID was still kind of a yeah. thing. So they're going to definitely open bigger. I think Legendary, the studio here behind it, was smart to push this movie from early November when the stars could not promote it. I think they're going to get a lot of those Timmy fans and Zendaya fans to come out. Uh, that combined with the nerds, I think will will push this over the top. 
I just can't remember a time that a movie reached such critical acclaim before it even came out. This is the highest rated movie in the history of IMDb right now. <laughs> is that true, though, or is that something you saw on Twitter? No, it's true. I looked it up. It is at 9.4. I think there's some shenanigans going on there with the fans. I think they want this movie to be a thing. Listen, the big challenge here is women. My wife was like, nope, I'm out. Like, not interested. So, you know, if they can get women, great. I, I'm not so sure. The last one did 400 million total. I don't know that overall this is going to get much above. I'd, I'd say 500. I think it'll probably get to 500. But much above that, you got to have four quadrants. And I don't know that this thing does. My wife felt the same way your wife did. <laughs> Do you think that sometimes a movie can be overmarketed? That where the, the, the expectation is too high. The, the only way to go is down now. Like if I if I leave this theater and this is anything less than Empire Strikes Back, I will be disappointed. Maybe, yeah. But the point is, you went to the theater. Well, I get financially. I understand. Yeah, I, I think that on the critic side, no, you cannot have people say too many nice things about your movie. I think there's such a thing as over marketing, meaning like flooding the zone and making your people feel like they've already seen your movie by the time it actually comes out. That's the problem. But I think that the campaign's been good. They got the stars out there. So this is, uh, this is going to be a nice and much needed little hit for Warners. So good for them. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Ben Thompson, producer Craig Horlbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez, and we'll see you one more time this week. 